Great. Good to see you guys this morning. So if there are no announcements, don't make Don Jay do the announcements. Make stuff up to fill. It's hard. They're just ripping, just ripping pages. Off. Cut that. Cut that. But, all right. This week, certainly Thanksgiving week, uh, we're taking a little pause from all of our activities just to give everybody time to uh, to enjoy their families, whether that's your immediate family or things that you have planned with other folks. And uh, we, if you are here and you don't have anywhere to, where to be, you want to be somewhere, let somebody know because chances are there are people that would love to have you. Um, and even if they wouldn't love to have you, you want anybody find a place for you, you want it, unless you want to be Thanksgiving and so we've got a, got a great text this, text this morning. I hope you all have your, have your thinking caps. Have a Bible, you're going to probably need one. So raise your hand. We've got some. We're going to be in 13 this morning, the whole middle chunk of it. And by God's grace, we're going to make it to verse 27. So let's pray and just ask him to, uh, to uh, our time together in the word this morning. So Father, we are the church family that you have, Lord, and this you have prescribed us to, to come together and to fellowship with one another, Lord, and most important, enjoy that fellowship with you, Lord, as we worship you, Lord, through praise and worship, Lord. Now we worship you, Lord, as we go to your word, just through this time of uh, instruction, Lord. We pray that you would be our teacher, Lord, that you would give us open hearts to hear what it is that your spirit would speak to your church today, Lord. Give us understanding, we pray, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. So, amen. Again, you're going to want a Bible this morning. Um, so, if you don't have one, please, you can use one on your phone or you can get one of ours. But we're going to continue today in Mark 13. And as you know, if you've been here with us, we, we're just continuing right through the gospel according to Mark. We're kind of in the home stretch here. And as we last left Jesus, we remember he's just days now from the cross. It's Tuesday of the Passion Week, and we were in this chapter for quite a while. Jesus just, or chapter 12, I should say, with Jesus there just leaving the temple after what was a very long day of discussion and debate with the Jewish religious leaders. And we watched that Jesus has now left the temple for what really would be the very last time in his earthly ministry. And with the disciples, he headed up and now sits atop the Mount of Olives. And on the top of the Mount of Olives, he's taking some time now to kind of outline for his disciples in what we call the Olivet Discourse. He's going through really all the things that are going to happen and come in the future, including, you know, in answer to their question, the, the near term, kind of the destruction of their beautiful temple, which was coming just 40 years in the future from that point. And then also he goes on, we, we looked at the beginning of that last week, he begins to give them this larger view, really encompassing the rest of human history from that point forward, including this time that we're living in today. And he began that last week in that first section with what Jesus called the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of birth pains as the world moves closer and closer to the end and that time where the kingdom of God, that new kingdom will be birthed. And this morning, we're going to move on. We're going to look at verses 9 through 27 into what is a new section of teaching and a new section of this kind of future history that Jesus is laying out. But before we do that, it's important for us, I think, as we continue to look at kind of this panorama of history unfold for us, that we take just a moment to first look at what really effectively is kind of the backbone of all Bible prophecy. And it's an outline that God gives of his plan for his people, the Jews, and it's an outline that he gave to the prophet Daniel. That was a fill in the blank, if you prophet Daniel. Daniel recorded it for recorded it for us in Daniel chapter nine. You guys, so stay with me this morning, you guys. Specifically, this is we're going to look this morning at what is Daniel's seventieth week, which is called the tribulation. 
So this is the prophecy, the 70-week prophecy given to Daniel. And my hope is that by just spending a few minutes this morning looking at this, it's going to really give us some context that we can start to understand the text we're looking at this morning. Because the text we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 13 is one of the most often misunderstood, misinterpreted in all of the Bible. But I think as we, as we dive in and just kind of let the scripture interpret the scripture, what we'll find, I hope, is that this is actually a text that's full of great encouragement and certainly gives us great insight to the heart of God and the, the things that are to come, I think, just the way that Jesus intended it to be. So you can go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 9. I never do this, but we're going to actually turn to a different text today, Daniel chapter 9. Um, this is a prophecy that you've heard talked about before, probably every Palm Sunday, right? Very often in the context of the coming of the Messiah, because this is the prophecy that pinpoints the precise day that Jesus would arrive on the scene. So some of this may sound a little bit familiar, but the part that we never talk about on Palm Sunday is that this prophecy reaches far beyond just Palm Sunday. And so it's very important for us this morning. Most of you guys know that Daniel was a prophet who ministered to the Jews and he ministered during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And as that captivity started to, they knew that it was coming to a close, Daniel started to pray to the Lord about what was the rest of his plan for his people. And then in response to that prayer, he received from the Lord this prophecy given through the angel Gabriel. So this is Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And it's in Daniel chapter 9. It starts out in verse 24 where it says this, that 70 weeks or literally 77 year periods are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So, pausing there, the Lord says to Daniel that from that point, there would be 77-year periods as the Lord sort of dealt with Israel and all of her sins, including the coming rejection of Jesus, including his return, including his anointing as their rightful Messiah. And now, starting in verse 25, he's going to give them kind of a breakdown of how those periods are going to go. He says, Know and therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So this points to the fact that after their return from the Babylonian captivity, it would take seven weeks or 49 years to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to reestablish worship. And we see that that happened exactly in that way in the biblical historical accounts of Ezra and of Nehemiah, right? So that's seven weeks. And then it says, and after the 62 weeks, it says Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So after the seven weeks, there were 62 more weeks and that's the date that we talk about every year on Palm Sunday when precisely 434 years to the day, right? We just looked at it when we looked at the triumphal entry in Mark 11. That was the date that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and presented himself as their Messiah only, as it says, to be cut off or to be crucified, not for himself, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. Now, when that happened, looking at the prophetically, that effectively paused the prophetic clock from running, right? The 69 weeks are done. That pauses the prophetic clock. And now what we see is that the Jews have sort of been set aside. And now we watch the Lord turn his attention towards sort of the birth of this new organism, the church, 
right? That's the period that we're in right now. Now, verse 26 continues. It says that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, we know that this historically happened in AD 70. We talked about it last week, right? This is the destruction of the temple by the Romans, who Gabriel says is this people of a ruler to come, right? In Daniel's time, it was a ruler to come far in the future. And we know that the temple still remains desolate to this day. Now, if you've been keeping track, right, in terms of these 70 weeks of this 70-week prophecy, we had seven weeks, we had another 62 weeks, so that's 69 weeks of the total 70 weeks have been completed before that point where somehow the prophetic clock was paused, right? Or for the disciples, it was about to pause just days from that point when Jesus would be cut off, crucified, and rejected, which means that we have one more week, right? We have one more seven-year period which we anticipate to come in God's dealings with his chosen people, Israel. And this is the period that Jesus is going to describe for us in the rest of our teaching this morning. And he starts, Daniel describes it in the 27th verse of that prophecy, where it says that then he, right, the coming ruler, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, we know that this part of the prophecy is future because we can look back at history and we don't see any historical fulfillment of this part of the prophecy. So we can conclude with confidence that this is still to come, right? So this, this seven-year period, this 70th week, begins, we believe, with what the Bible describes as some sort of a rising world ruler who will come onto the scene and make a seven-year peace treaty with Israel amongst others. The scriptures describe him as being charismatic, persuasive, impressive, intellectual. He'll be a very skilled orator. The scriptures call him the beast from heaven's perspective. The scriptures call him the Antichrist because he comes instead of Christ. And this is a man who will capture the attention of the entire world. He'll come on the scene and he'll appear to be Israel's friend and to be Israel's protector. He will seem to diffuse all of the problems present in the Middle East. And we know just from the news today, that's a lot of problems, right? Part of this treaty, we believe, he'll even work out a deal where the Jews will be allowed to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount and restart their sacrifices, which of course they very much want to do today. But here's what it says in the rest of Daniel 9.27. It says, but in the middle of the week, so in the middle of that seven-year sort of a treaty period, it says he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So what that all means is that in spite of all of his promises, the Antichrist is going to break his covenant with Israel three and a half years into that seven-year treaty. So right in the middle of that week, right, all of a sudden Israel's newfound protector will now become their worst persecutor. And Jesus is going to detail that for us this morning. So, again, this is a bit of background, really, to set the context. That was all a freebie this morning, right? A whole other Old Testament text that you got for free wrapped up in Mark 13. So turn back to Mark 13. We're going to jump in with Jesus. Remember, in verses 5 through 8, he just outlined for us all of those general conditions in the world between the point where he ascends until the time when this 70th week begins, right? We talked about it last week, right? Heavy, an unsettled time where we're going to watch and witness as the world starts to systematically 
unravel on every level, right? Destabilizing spiritually and politically and materially and even physically. And we're living in that time watching these things happen right now, right? The beginning of those birth pains, which we said are just going to simply begin to increase with frequency and increase with intensity as we approach the end. And it's in the midst of all of this, look at now in verse 9, Jesus says this, he says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. So Jesus says, even as all of this is happening, right, all of these beginnings of birth pangs, all of this stuff is happening around you, you need to be prepared for persecution as you preach the good news of the gospel message. Now Matthew, in his account, he makes it super simple. What he says, he records Jesus' words, where in Matthew 24, 9, it says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Aren't you glad you came to church today, right? Now look, I want us to pay special attention to the very first word of that verse, especially the way that Matthew records it. Because many believe, as do I, that it gives us, Matthew's account is really what gives us kind of the chronological context for this period. Notice with me the first word of verse 9 in Matthew's account. It's up there on the big board. What is it? It's then. So this is our first time word so far in the Olivet Discourse. And what it gives us the sense is that then, after the season of the beginning of sorrows, there's something different that happens. And I think it's super interesting here because Mark's emphasis in the way he records what Jesus said is that we need to be aware of the reality of this persecution at all times, and yet Matthew's focuses on the fact that there's going to be this kind of a heightened persecution that's going to mark a very special time, a different time. Now, is that a contradiction? No. That's revelation. What that is, is that's the Spirit of God speaking specifically through two different authors presenting two different truths that are simultaneously true. Right? Again, many Bible students, including me, begin that it's, believe that it's here in verse 9 that these verses, both in Matthew and in Mark's account, this marks the beginning of that final seven-year period known as the tribulation, right? The 70th week of Daniel's prophecy that is yet to come, when God's going to bring an end effectively to human history. And that specifically, Jesus starts out here. Now he's going to talk about these things that are really going to start to characterize that first half, right? The first three and a half years of the tribulation chronologically and prophetically, right? So, in spite of all these treaties that are in place to promise to protect the people, right, now this satanically powered leader, his ultimate goal, of course, is the destruction of the Jewish people and of anyone who's come to faith in Jesus. So this is the point when he comes to control where a really widespread persecution of them will actually begin. Notice Jesus says that the persecution is going to be for his name's sake. So the people that are being persecuted at this point are what we would call tribulation saints, right? Anyone who comes to faith in him during this time is going to be the object of this special season of heightened persecution. I appreciated the way one author put this. He said, we of this present age may appropriate these words to ourselves when we are in similar circumstances, but it's important to see their exact application. The suffering saints referred to are clearly those of Israel who will be God's final witnesses. Understand, this will be a time where the nations collectively will conduct just a bitter hate campaign against all who are true to Jesus instead 
of demonstrating allegiance to this one world ruler, the Antichrist. And we can start to see the groundwork being laid for this even today. We can see the systems and the mindset that are all moving into position globally that would really enable this kind of worldwide persecution totally. Again, as Mark says again, these newfound believers in Jesus, look back at verse 9, delivered up to councils, beaten in the synagogues, brought before rulers and kings, right? So not only would they be tried in religious and civil courts, even in synagogues by apostate Jews, but they would be martyred for their faith because they refused to recant. And again, we've seen this kind of thing happening all throughout church history, right? But this seems to indicate another level of worldwide systematic persecution, right? As faithful believers are going to experience this real personal testing during this first half of the tribulation. We're going to see in the next verses that ultimately the Antichrist is going to set himself up to be God and demand to be worshipped by the entire planet. So it only makes sense that during this initial phase of his rise to power, after he has successfully negotiated bringing peace to the Middle East, right, that what he's going to do is he's going to increasingly weaponize the already present world systems of false religion and tolerance. Understand, from the book of Revelation, the Antichrist is the, the rider on the white horse of the first seal. In Revelation chapter 6, that white horse brings peace, and yet to maintain that peace, he's going to have to start to rule with an iron fist, which brings the second seal, which is the fiery red horse of war. As the Antichrist is forced to maintain his power to institute sort of a world police state to tighten up and control anyone who's not towing the party line. To target, to persecute in particular those who are following the true Christ. And what the Antichrist knows is the truth. And yet Jesus promises, look what he promises in verse 11. Even with those who suffer but he'll be with them. He says, when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So persecuted believers in all ages have had this promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit to both enable their witness and really to empower their witness, but especially during this final season of tribulation. Look what Jesus says in verse 12. He says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Right? Even those relationships, the ones who were once closest to each other, he says, are going to betray each other. Right? Marriages, homes, families, as well as nations are going to be torn apart because of this divided loyalty. It's going to be a matter of life and death. Right? The majority is going to be pledging their allegiance to this coming world ruler. And so anyone that has come to faith in Jesus during this time, they're going to recognize him for who he is, and now they're going to make themselves a target of the majority, right? A target of that power structure of thought and that power structure of opinion just to do whatever they want with anyone who holds an opposing view. And yet even in this environment, Jesus promises that for those who are able to, to keep the faith and to persevere, he says they're going to be delivered. Right, those tribulation saints who endure to the end of the tribulation are going to be delivered as Jesus comes again. So they'll be preserved through the period physically and then be delivered from that final judgment eternally. If they can just, during that time of increasingly intense persecution, just hold on, really, as society breaks down around them. 
Again, I appreciate the way Matthew records what Jesus said. I really think it gives us a picture of everything that's going to be happening in this period socially. Matthew 24, 12 says, Jesus says, because of lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness will abound. Other translations say that sin will be rampant everywhere and there will be a multiplication of wickedness, right? To the point where law enforcement won't be able to keep the peace in the face of these kind of exponential increases in persecutions and murders and crimes, right? So really, I think what this is showing us is this, not just believers are gonna undergo this time of testing and trial, but the overall conditions of the world during this time are gonna, quickly deteriorate into worldwide chaos. And not just sort of geopolitically, but in that personal realm as well, where you start to see families falling apart over all of this. And really what this is, is this is a graphic, horrifying picture of what the world looks like devoid of the influence of God and left exclusively under the control of human nature. And now we have Satan's evil and pervasive influence just running ultimately unchecked. Now, we as Bible students believe that there is one clear reason for this inevitable and this incredibly rapid decline. And that is this. Because the Holy Spirit's influence in the world, as he's currently working through the church, will no longer be in operation because the church will have been removed from the earth at the rapture just before the beginning of this seven-year period, right? The, the rapture of the church, right? It comes from the Latin word rapturo, right? Which simply means to be caught away. This is the way Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Paul actually says that it, it, it is this removal of the church which then allows for the Antichrist to come to power in the first place. In 2 Thessalonians, he describes in details for that church the things that, that really pertain to the church in this scenario. He's writing to a group of believers who thought that they had missed out on the coming of Jesus. They thought they had missed out on the rapture, and this is what he writes to them. He says, let no one deceive you by any means. He says, that day will not come, so that the day of the Lord, the, the, the final judgment of God, he says, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And you know, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So he who now restrains, what could possibly hold back Satan? The Holy Spirit. So he who now restrains is the Holy Spirit as he works through the church as a preserving force within the world and within society. And Paul says that he'll continue to restrain and to contain the revelation of the Antichrist or the full-blown release of this evil satanic influence until the spirit is removed when the church is removed. Right? And the Antichrist can't be fully revealed until that restrainer is taken out of the midst, but then Satan will reveal 
his masterpiece, the Antichrist. So with that in mind, we believe the logical place for that to occur is right somewhere between verses 8 and 9, right where we started our study this morning. Now, Jesus doesn't specifically mention it here, and I think for good reason. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he talks about the, the rapture as a mystery or as a hidden truth. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery that we shall not all sleep or die. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So I believe that this teaching about this coming event isn't introduced here by Jesus because it was still a hidden mystery from men, right, when Jesus spoke this. This was a truth for the church to be revealed later through Paul, the great apostle to the church. There's no time that's set for it. There's no prophecy that still needs to be fulfilled before the rapture can occur. And in fact, we believe that the rapture is the next prophetic event in the process and that it's actually what's going to help restart that prophetic clock, allowing this rocket-like rise to power of the Antichrist. Right? He's going to be thrust into this place of prominence, offering this solution to the Mideast problem of peace with his ability to broker this long-desired agreement between Israel and her enemies. And perhaps even, I believe, he's going to be the guy on the scene who offers a very rational and reasonable and a very calming explanation for the sudden disappearance in an instant Right in the twinkling of an eye of millions of Christians worldwide. I don't know if they'll blame it on aliens. I don't know what they're going to blame it on. But he'll, I believe he'll have a solution and everyone will believe it. Now, I realize this sounds a lot like an epic film plot, doesn't it? Like maybe Kirk Cameron, maybe even Nicolas Cage, right? But the truth is, Right? Truth is stranger than fiction. And this truth is plucked right from the pages of the scriptures. And there's so much I know just to digest here and to understand prophetically. And, and I don't think we need to memorize every detail. But what I think is even more important is I think that we understand that there's a great word of encouragement hidden in all of this personally and corporately for us as the church. Certainly, we can take comfort in the promise that we're going to be removed at the rapture before this tribulation period begins on earth. Right? Amen? That's, that's comforting. And that was Paul's whole point in bringing up this truth to the Thessalonians. Again, to the Thessalonians, Paul said, God did not appoint us to wrath. He was comforting them with the truth that they wouldn't see this great and terrible time of tribulation, what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. But I think that even just beyond being comforted about the future, I think that this should really be an encouragement to us and even energizing for us in the present. And I'll tell you why. Because so often I think it can seem that we're not making much of a difference. You know, so often we can look around as the world spins seemingly out of control and the evil around us is increasingly, maybe you feel like it's threatening to overwhelm us. And yet based on the prophetic description given here, as well as in Matthew and also in Luke's account, given the description of what the world's going to be like when we're removed... And when the influence of the Holy Spirit working through the church is removed from the earth, it surely seems like we are still making some kind of a difference. As weak and as feeble as our witness might seem, we are absolutely still being used by the Lord to make a difference. After Christians are removed from this planet in the rapture, sin will run rampant. Love will grow cold. And of course, we're starting to see evidence of this, right, every night on the news. But we're starting to see the evidence of what's going to happen in a society and in a culture, even as the witness of the Spirit now is increasingly silenced, 
in the public arena, right? As the, our traditional kind of a Judeo-Christian ethic is very quickly being replaced by relativism and rationalism and secular humanism, right? This kind of a new tolerance that's redefining, you know, what was once right is now wrong and what was always wrong all of a sudden is now right. And we're seeing that and yet, even as of yet, it's not unchecked. Because the Holy Spirit is still working through us as a preserving force, which Jesus and the scriptures say are holding back this tide of evil. So please be encouraged this morning. We are still making a difference. And be energized this morning that we should continue to make that difference. And to really minister wherever it is that we are able to infuse beauty and to bring hope and to reflect that light of Jesus into the darkness in whatever different spheres of influence you've been placed. And be encouraged too. consider this, even as we think about this very dark time that's coming in human history, understand the Bible is very clear that God will still continue to be working actively and working effectively to save people, even in the midst of all of this judgment. Because look back what it said in verse 10. Jesus promised this. He said, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And I want to read it to you the way that Matthew records it, again, in his more kind of a chronological approach. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and what? Then the end will come. So understand this, that even with the church out of the picture, the Lord is not going to leave himself without an effective witness. And in fact, the book of Revelation tells us that he's going to raise up 144,000 of them. 144,000 faithful witnesses. Revelation 7 says that after the rapture, there'll be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are going to be anointed and sealed by the Lord for their protection. They're going to function as missionaries to the lost world. And through their efforts, the book of Revelation says that multitudes are going to be saved. Revelation chapter 11 also says that Moses himself and perhaps Elijah are going to come back on the scene and they're going to work miracles and they're going to call fire down again from heaven. At one point, Revelation chapter 14 says that an angel will fly across the sky, across this entire planet, basically saying, this is my translation, don't be fooled by the Antichrist, right? Don't take the mark of the beast, right? An angel flying through the heavens saying that to all mankind. So the main point is that millions of people are going to be saved even during this terrible, terrible time. Now trust me, they're going to make it to heaven too, but we're going to fly first class. Right? They're going to get there in coach. Jesus says, look, before the end, the gospel will go out to the whole world. And persecution or false prophets, not even this drastic downgrade of society is going to prevent the spread of the gospel. But those who come to faith during that time, they are going to endure terrible persecution. They're going to be saved from devastation when the Lord comes and delivers them. Now, you may have heard this verse quoted in the sense that, you know, we have to evangelize the entire world so that Jesus can come back. Or, you know, that he can't come back until that last person hears the gospel. I personally don't believe that this is a correct understanding of Scripture. Jesus is going to come back at a time that's already appointed by the Father. And, and absolutely the gospel needs to be preached. Surely we have this great privilege of participating in that process. But the second coming of Jesus is not dependent upon us. Here's the truth, right? 
evangelism, we love it. And yet the greatest explosion of evangelism that this world has ever seen is not even going to take place until after we're out of here. Because the Lord is so faithful, right? He's still in control. He loves people and he wants to reach them right up until the end at all costs. Now remember, Jesus started this entire discourse because he was answering that question that the disciples asked, you know, when will this happen? What's going to be the sign of your coming? And in verses 5 through 8, he gave us those, that overview of the birth pains, right, kind of the signs of the times. Then in verses 9 through 13, we've just seen that something different is going to happen. We're going to start to shift from the time of that beginning of sorrows in the first half of the seven-year tribulation period. And now next, as we come to verse 14, Jesus is now going to continue chronologically, and he's now going to give us the single great observable sign within that period, which is going to point to his coming and the end of this age. It's called the abomination of desolation. Look in verse 14. Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, or Matthew says, standing in the holy place, Jesus says, let the reader understand. So this midpoint mark of the seven-year tribulation period is so important because at that time, a very specific event is going to take place. The very thing that we just read that Daniel prophesied centuries ago, right? Essentially, literally, the, the abomination of desolation speaks of the ultimate desecration of the Jewish temple, right? Uh, the establishing of this idolatrous image in the holy place itself, in that rebuilt temple, and though the, the Antichrist, again, he's initially going to come across of this man of peace, but right here in the middle of this seven-year period, we said he's going to break his peace treaty with Israel, right? Then he's going to cause some sort of a living statue of himself to be put into the temple, right? And his associate, Revelation 20, the false prophet, is going to cause the entire earth to bow down and to worship it and to worship the Antichrist as God. And Revelation 13 tells us that failing to comply with this is going to be punishable by death. We know that Satan's desire has always been to receive worship from the world, and this is the time when he's going to start to receive that. And it is this very act that is inevitably going to trigger that final judgment of God. It's the abomination that brings the desolation. So this single event is of such tremendous importance. right? Jesus says that it's the installation of this idol in the temple that's going to be the signal to anyone who knows the word of God that the great tribulation has already begun. So the seven-year period is called the tribulation. The last three and a half years is called the great tribulation. And this is when the judgments intensify and literally all hell breaks loose on earth. This is the period when we see both the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments of Revelation 8 and Revelation 16. And this abomination of desolation in the temple, that is going to be the sign to the Jews that they have misplaced their faith in a very false Messiah. And notice specifically, the Lord wants everyone who sees this happen to understand it because they can read about it. It's almost like Jesus is dropping a breadcrumb here. It's more like he's dropping the whole loaf of bread, right, to the Jews and the tribulation saints who are going to be alive during this terrible time, right? They've been duped by the Antichrist, but they've been directed by this faithful witness to read the very text that we're reading now, right? Go read Mark 13, go read Mark 24, go read Luke 21, and it reminds them of the fact 
that what they're seeing happening is precisely what they were told by the Lord through the prophet Daniel would ultimately happen. Because by reading the prophet Daniel, and then by reading what Jesus is about to say next, these people who are alive on the earth during that time, they are going to understand what's happening and exactly what they need to do, which is to get the heck out of there, right? Because this is the great tribulation. Jesus says, when you see this take place, look at the rest of verse 14. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. And Matthew adds, or on the Sabbath day. So Jesus is warning the Jews specifically. He says, flee from Jerusalem. Because this last half of the Great Tribulation is going to end ultimately with the armies of the planet surrounding Jerusalem. So those who are living in the vicinity of Jerusalem, they're going to be the very first in line as the Antichrist unleashes his fury on anyone who refuses to bow down to his idolatrous image. And notice these, these warnings are directed specifically to Israelites, not to the church, right? He's talking about Judea and living on housetops. We don't live on our housetops. He's talking about the Sabbath day. Again, these are all things that put this kind of into a Jewish context for us. It's interesting, Zechariah, he talks about this coming abomination of desolation and that the Jews indeed are going to flee but that only one-third of them are going to make it out to safely. So tragically, at this point, two-thirds of the Jewish nation are going to be caught and swallowed up in this flood of persecution that's going to follow as the Antichrist officially declares war on them. And the violence and the bloodshed are going to be staggering. Many Bible students believe that the remainder of the Jews who are running out of Jerusalem are going to run to a place, the ancient city of Petra. Now, Petra is located in present-day Jordan. Petra is kind of this mysterious, sort of a, a, a miraculous city. I just want to read to you the way one author described it. He said that in approximately 2000 B.C., Esau settled in a volcanic crater that was approximately a mile in length. It was an incredibly secure place, for to get into the crater, one had to go through a narrow canyon that was only 12 feet wide. In many places, with a rock face between 200 feet and 1,000 feet high on either side, the entire city could easily be guarded by only 15 soldiers marching along the ridges above its narrow entrance. Thus, the descendants of Esau, called the Edomites, dwelt in the city of Petra for centuries, believing they were invincible. Over the years, they constructed an architectural phenomenon. Carved right into the rock are amphitheaters, banks, temples, and an aqueduct system that baffles scientists to this day. And the city began to weaken when it was struck with a plague, and eventually the Edomites were wiped out entirely. Now, for many, many centuries, people would hear the stories about this rock city of Petra. Teachers would talk about it, but in most people's minds, it was as lost as the lost city of like Atlantis. It was just kind of this mythological place that no one ever really knew if it existed until 1812, there was this Bible teacher, kind of explorer, kind of adventurer, like Indiana Jonesy kind of a guy, right? His name was Johann Burkhart, and he was determined that Petra was out there and he was going to find it. And when he did, he couldn't believe what he saw. Because even though it had been abandoned for centuries, even though it remained desolate to that day, he was amazed just by the the, the grandeur and the splendor of what he saw. And most amazing were these two huge eagle's wings that were carved right into the rock at the very entrance to the city. 
and then found all these other eagles inscribed throughout the city in these different carvings. Eagles are interesting because in the book of Revelation in chapter 12 in verse 14, describing what happens during this very same period of the end time scenario, this is what the book of Revelation says. It says, then the woman who is Israel was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, which is three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent or Satan. Awesome. And a number of years ago, there was another Bible teacher named W.E. Blackstone. He was so convinced that Petra was going to be the place where the Jews are going to flee and be kept safe that in the 1940s, he went and purchased thousands of Hebrew New Testament. And they went through them all and they underlined passages like Mark 13, like Matthew 24, like Revelation 12. And they left them in these earthen jars all throughout Petra. So that when the Jews finally get there, these Bibles will be there waiting for them. Don't you love it? And they will shelter there with God's word, even as God's wrath is poured out in judgment on the world. So for Jesus says in verse 19, For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. So this final three and a half years, right, after the Antichrist reveals his true nature in the temple, after the Jews flee out there into the wilderness, it's going to be a time of disaster and destruction and death unlike any other in human history. The book of Revelation, of course, details these judgments, and they include plagues, boils, all sea life dying, rivers and water sources turning to blood, heat that scorches the earth, thick darkness that takes over the planet, men crying out for death as relief from this, wicked spirits that draw the nations to array themselves into battle at Armageddon. It talks about global earthquakes and hundred pound hailstones coming down from the sky. And the, the, the truly awful character of the Great Tribulation probably is impossible for any of us to really grasp. And that's saying something when we consider all of the terrible wars and plagues and famine and all the atrocities that human history has already seen. But when God pours out his wrath on a God-rejecting world, it will truly be Great Tribulation. But here's what I want us to see. It will also be measured tribulation. The, the idea here isn't that God is in some kind of an out-of-control temper tantrum rage. But notice Jesus said that unless the Lord had shortened or contained or numbered the days, unless God restrained himself, no one would survive and the entire world would be annihilated but Jesus says that God will shorten them for the sake of his elect. And those days actually are numbered for us exactly. In Daniel chapter 12, John in the book of Revelation chapters 11 and 12, they tell us that those days are going to be precisely 1,260 days, which just happens to be exactly three and a half years when you calculate it made up of 30-day months according to the ancient Jewish calendar. And he does that, Jesus says here, as an act of mercy for the elect, which refers to Jews and Gentiles who are believing and have been converted. Sometimes when people see that word elect in the scriptures, they automatically assume it's talking about the church. And yet... The tribulation saints, those same people we've been talking about all morning, the moment they've come to know the Lord during the tribulation, right? They've effectively become Christians, so they are now part of the elect, right? It's all about context, right? 
It's so important as we read and we try to understand these things that are going to come during the tribulation and during the great tribulation, it's important that we maintain our perspective and that we're even able to find God's grace in the midst of all of it. Because understand this, the tribulation period, it signifies this incredible judgment on mankind collectively but even during and all throughout that time, people will be able to repent individually. Right In the midst of his wrath, God is still trying to save the souls of the rebellious through his witnesses, through these miracles of Moses and Elijah, through these angels flying through the sky. He's trying to get individual men and women to turn to him and be saved from this eternal destruction. So much so that Jesus gives us this final warning in verse 21. He says, then, right, at that time, even more so than at any other time, he says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. He says, but take heed and see, I have told you all things beforehand. Things are going to be so bad. People are going to wonder if there's any relief, and that's going to give rise to this whole other round of spiritual leaders who are going to come onto the scene and try to deceive and to sway those who put faith in Jesus away from him. Look, we found the Messiah, right? He's out here in the desert, or he's over here, or he, he's over there. Jesus says, don't believe it. Remember, I've already told you that when I come, everybody's going to know it, right? As Matthew says, that as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also, also will the coming of man be. Here's the difference. When Jesus comes for the church at the rapture, before the tribulation, he's going to come in the air, in the twinkling of an eye, and we as his people are going to be caught up to meet him. But... When Jesus comes seven years later with the church at his second coming, at the end of the tribulation, that is going to be a very public event and every eye will see him. Jesus says, don't be deceived. When I return to set up this righteous kingdom, it is going to be unmistakable. It's going to be unmissable. Right? Like lightning flashing across the sky, it's going to be clear to everybody. And then he tells us in the next verses that there are going to be these other things that are going to happen in the heavens so that we can't miss it. This is the second coming of Jesus. Look here in verse 24. In those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and great glory. There's these tremendous disturbances in the heavens, right? And the world's going to be racked by these cosmic catastrophes. And in a sense, this is, you know, Paul says the creation's going to be groaning, right? This is that groaning he talks about in the heavens. This is this one last crescendo before the return of Jesus and before the world sees Jesus return in power and glory. And what we know at that time it says in Matthew 24 that all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn for him. Probably because they realize that their time for judgment has come. Can you even imagine? Right? The one who was spit upon and crucified is going to be vindicated as the Lord of heaven and earth. Right? Here's this meek and lowly Jesus who's now appearing as the mighty Jehovah himself. The sacrificial lamb has now come as the, as the lion. Right here, this lowly carpenter of Nazareth is now revealed as the king of kings and lord of lords. And the whole earth is going to mourn, and especially the scriptures say that Israel is going to mourn. Zechariah tells us this. As Jesus returns and they see the wounds, they're going to ask what the, the Jews will ask, what are these wounds between your hands? And then Jesus will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house 
of my friends. Amazingly, it says this in, in, uh, in Zechariah 12. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves a firstborn. Jesus is going to return at the very hour that Israel is about to be defeated by the armies of the world, right? Gathered all there together in the valley of Megiddo for the battle of Armageddon, right? All of the armies of the world lured there by the Antichrist and at the moment that it looks like they're going to overtake Israel, Jesus is going to return with the armies of heaven. Who's that? That's you and that's me. Each of us on our own white horse, right? Following Jesus on his right horse, Jesus is going to rescue his people and that's the moment that they're going to realize that he is their true Messiah. And there will be this national repentance and a national cleansing and a national restoration under his leadership. Verse 27 says, Then he will send his angels and gather together his elect, so all those who believe, from the four winds and from the farthest part of this earth to the farthest part of heaven. Right? All of these people, right, they'd received the kingdom message. Now they're gathered together to meet the king. And they become the initial inhabitants who will go in and become the, the initial peoples of the millennial reign of Jesus on earth. This time when finally the, the throne of David is reestablished, Jesus' throne is set up in Jerusalem, and Jesus reigns in righteousness for a thousand glorious years. That was a lot, wasn't it? Right? So yeah, this is an admittedly heavy text, right? But I, I hope it leaves us with kind of an encouraging perspective. And one more quick scripture. Remember the prophet Habakkuk, right? The prophet Habakkuk prophesied during another time of impending judgment that was about to come upon the Jewish people. It was right before they were carried away captive into Babylon. And at, what, at one point, Habakkuk cried out to the Lord, knowing that judgment was well-deserved. But he appealed to the Lord that that judgment somehow would be shortened or somehow be softened or somehow be something. Habakkuk says this, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known, he says, in wrath, Remember mercy. And God did. Because instead of the Jews being destroyed, being destroyed completely by the conquering Babylonians, they were carried away captive instead. And they were able to continue and eventually to return to their land after his chastening was over. Because in his wrath, God remembered mercy. And here again, during this time that's going to come upon this planet, in his wrath, God will remember mercy. All throughout this 70th week of Daniel, right, as he's bringing judgment, righteous judgment upon this world that had rejected his rule and rejected his son, we just watch in amazement the great care that, care that God takes that even in the face of their rebellion, we watch the way he protects and he preserves and he provides for and he sustains his people, the Jews. Right? And all the promises that he made to them. Right? Even though they were deserving of punishment, still there was this hope. Right? And our lives, you guys, are just the same. God remembers mercy. Even in those times where we feel like maybe we're deserving or maybe we feel like we're even experiencing that righteous wrath of God. Remember, it's only through God's mercy that we haven't already been consumed by our own sin. It's only because of God's mercy that any of us received his son. It's only because, as it says in the Psalms, that the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in mercy. It's only because of that that we're able to persevere at all. 
And so just an encouragement this morning in, in the face of whatever it is that you're facing, right? even when we're sure of nothing else in this life, we can always be sure to remember God's mercy. We can always be sure that he's sworn never to leave us or to forsake us. We can always be sure that he's called us into this new life and it's a life of blessing and of wholeness. And he's called us to find our great and final fulfillment in him and in his son. Right. So, so let's come to the Lord each day seeking after that mercy and asking him just to continue that work in us, even as we're waiting, right, to be rescued and to be raptured before the worst of the times come. But we really want the Lord to be glorified in our lives and in our hearts every day leading up until that point. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord, and we pray that your spirit would help us, Lord, to make sense of all of these things that was, as we look at all that you've revealed to us about um, what this world is coming to, Lord. We pray that it would quicken our hearts and quicken our spirits, Lord. Help us to live as you would have us live for today, Lord, as we look ahead toward tomorrow. Lord, as we look ahead toward that time when you will catch us away to be with you in the air, Lord, and you'll finish out these final years uh, of human history. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. Lord, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.